round the flag, boys, we rally once again. Shouting the flag, we'll cry for freedom. We will rally from the hillside, we'll gather from the plain. Shouting the flag, we'll cry for freedom. The Union forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah. Down with the traitor, up with the spark. While we rally round the flag, boys, rally once again. Shouting the battle cry of freedom. All right, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to episode seven of the New World Signals podcast. I am once again on my Orange County estate overlooking the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains and my fields of tobacco in front of me. Uh, It is a lovely summer evening. The sunset was absolutely gorgeous with uh, clouds behind it. I've been um, uh, I've been posting tons of photos of it in the various Telegram chats I'm in. I might post some photos of it on Twitter, but uh, I am joined today by a very outstanding guest. Um, he is an excellent historian, uh, but not just a historian in the in the modern day sense. He's a he's a novelist, really. At the end of the day, he he writes historical novels. Uh, he is the author of, I believe, four I believe three novels, and then um uh, and then one uh one little one little pamphlet. Um, but he's the he's the author of the novels Rampage on the River, Blood for Blood at Nashville, and The Perils of Perryville, um, all of which are excellent books. Uh, I've read I've read um, a little bit from all three, and uh, I, I do believe that this gentleman here is his style is very evocative of such greats as a uh, Shelby Foote, and I would would give a very very warm welcome to Mr. Cody C. Engdahl. Mr. Engdahl, how are you doing, sir, this evening? I'm doing great, Paul. Can I call you Paul? I mean, you can call me Cody. Please, please, of course. Um, Yeah, I am uh, broadcasting from the very gritty East Nashville, which I I like a lot because it reminds me of home, which I am originally from Detroit, uh, but I'm a transplant here. uh, And it wasn't so beautiful. It was beautiful in that we had a really nice storm come in and kind of knock off some of our humidity, but uh, still. Still, nonetheless, a beautiful night here in East Nashville. Yeah, and the worst the worst part about storms on this side of the day, Mason-Dixon is that they're only a temporary respite because you know that as soon as the storm clears and they go away, the humidity will come back yeah. with the added fuel of the new fallen rain. Yes. And, you know, that's that's the funny thing about living in the South and about Southerners is it's, uh, you know, you, you'll be in a, you'll be sitting in the middle of the day 
whether in your backyard or on your on your porch or just walking around or doing something you'll be you'll be there in the middle of the day and it'll be hot as all get out it'll be 90 something degrees but like 40 percent humidity so it feels like 130 degrees <laughs> and you're sweating your ass off like a stuffed pig <laughs> and um you're thinking to yourself it is too hot for me to be here right now yeah. it is far too hot for me to be here but then you don't leave <laughs> you just stay there <laughs> well you know they say about the heat you don't have to shovel it oh of course yeah that's you know what that is the best part i will tell you you know out in my neck of the woods you know i'm i'm just far north enough uh for there for us to get snow on a semi regular basis and the problem is with living in you know northern virginia around where i live you know an inch of snow falls and the whole world stops yeah it just it's it it like nothing is running nothing is going and it's a day off yeah. and you know once you get to the other side of the mason dixon you know four feet fall oh just tuesday <laughs> oh yeah no, i remember as a kid like complete whiteout snow coming down waiting for the bus and just seeing like the bus flashers coming through the falling snow i mean here that would never happen here in tennessee oh of course not and to be honest um you know for the downsides of that you know the humidity it's the price we pay you know someone someone once said to me back in my army days someone once said to me you know the worst part because all, all all army bases are all army bases you spend time at are in the south except yeah. for fort drum which has its own its own problems but um you know, I had a buddy of mine and we were, we were, I think we were at Fort Bragg and he said to me, you know, what the worst fucking part of the heat is, is, you know, doesn't matter what you could do. Doesn't matter if you strip down, you know, yeah. skivvy, it's still hot as all get out. You still feel like your skin is melting off. Yeah. Right. You know, if it's cold, you can just put on a jacket. Right. And then I, then I looked at him and I said to him, yeah, but you know, when you're up there in the other side of the Mason Dixon and you're getting, um, you're getting snow fucking eight feet thick like not only do you have to shovel that but you have to walk yeah. through that and you have to yeah. live a normal life yeah. <laughs> during that yeah and get car without getting it all you know, open up your car door and all it falls onto your driver's seat and so and then immediately starts melting and you have to sit in yeah so it's it's a nightmare but i guess you know um you know every place like my girlfriend says we all have our cross-eyed bears um so uh you know you trade one for the other, and uh, I will course. say I, I like living in the South. I, I like being from Detroit, but I I like being from Detroit but living in the South. It's a nice yeah. Place. You're you're part of a you're part of a very unique tribe. We uh, very uh, affectionately refer to as snowbirds down here. Yeah. Who um you come down here and you're like it's not it's not freaking freezing your nuts off cold, and then you get used to it and you're like oh I can't go back to that. <laughs> I've, I've also been called. So I've heard the difference between a Yankee and a damn Yankee is a Yankee is someone who comes to visit the South, but a damn Yankee is one who doesn't. <laughs> I'm a damn Yankee. Yeah, yeah, you are. Uh, you you know, carpetbagger, all sorts of other, Absolutely. all sorts of other names that could be applied. And you know, when the last time that Yankees came south in large numbers, um, not not move, they weren't moving here. They were actually uh, in uniform and under arms. And the first time, you know, the last time they experienced uh, the southern hospitality of the weather in which they were thinking, oh, it's the sunny south. And I think it, I think it was specifically after the fall of uh, Fort Donelson, I think um, it was Grant's army back when he was uh, back when he was under. Uh, who was he under? Um, uh, uh, Halleck. 
Halleck. Yeah, back when he was under Halleck, old brains out in the um, uh, in the western in the western theater. Right after he had taken Fort Donaldson and he was marching down. Um, I think it was to on on the route to Shiloh. Yes. Um, or what would become Shiloh? Because he had no idea Shiloh was going to be a thing. Yeah, they were was, Pittsburgh Landing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but on the march down, um, all of his soldiers, you know, in in the army of the uh, in the army of the Mississippi, all of his soldiers threw out their heavy overcoats, their winter clothing on the march because like, oh, it's the South. It's never going to get cold here. And then that, you know, over the next couple of days, a massive monsoon blew in and temperatures dropped to about, I think, 30 degrees and a, a bunch of men froze to death. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was that was, I think, the Southern hospitality shown that invading army uh, before the uh, Southern hospitality shown by um, uh, Sidney Johnson at uh, Shiloh. Yeah. But. You know, I, I, I bring this up. I, I mentioned this little anecdote because uh, the reason I had you on the show, sir, and, you know, for all my listeners, the reason I bring on Mr. Engdahl is because the Civil War is probably one of the most important historical, social, political, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, topics whenever you're considering the concept of Americana. Whenever you're looking into what the identity of America is, it's almost definitively tied to the Civil War. Um, Almost as much as the revolution, I think. I think there are no no things that are, you know, more important to the American consciousness in terms of you know national struggles. The revolution, nothing will ever beat the revolution because that was the the founding myth. That yeah. was the thing that everyone is like hearkening back to at all times, right? Well, the civil, yeah, but they call the Civil War the second founding, the second founding myth for a reason because it is. It is essentially what determined, at least for the next hundred or so years, probably for the rest of its existence, it determined the course America was going to go down, uh, for better or for ill. And I brought you on, Mr. Engdahl, um, because I wanted specifically to talk about what place the Civil War has in the American consciousness, how it expresses itself, how everyday Americans, you know, express their sort of underlying prejudices about it from either side of it, right? Because even if you're not even talking, thinking, or doing anything about the Civil War, sometimes, a lot a lot of times, Americans will just do things, right, that were informed by the Civil War or were, or were as a result of a way of life or a cultural practice brought about by the Civil War without even realizing it. Yeah. Um, you know, the popularity of the sport baseball only, you know, it wasn't Abner Doubleday who invented baseball, but, you know, it was his adoption of it. You know, he was the, it's like how Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. It didn't really matter until he did it. Right. right. You right. know, the, the field at the baseball hall of fame in, uh, I forget which town, but it's in the Finger Lakes up in upstate New York. Cooper, uh, Coopertown. Yeah. So in Coopertown, the, the, um, uh, on the Finger Lakes up in upstate New York, um, the, the Baseball Hall of Fame, it's called Doubleday Field there for a reason, because it was it was double, Abner Doubleday who popularized baseball as just a regular everyday American thing. And that was because of the Civil War. That's just one example. Yeah. And so Mr. Engdahl, either, you know, at length or in brevity, whichever way you believe is more appropriate, um, I would like to hear uh, what you think the, the place of the American Civil War has in the consciousness of Americans and in the, the, the uh, aspects of Americana. 
Well, yeah, I think actually um, one of the things about America is that Americans, as you well know, Paul, is that Americans are not a monolithic people. And I've lived overseas. I taught English in in uh, in Japan and Portugal, and I met a lot of British people and who wanted to give me a, a hard time, bless their hearts. And uh, I, I would tell them, I would say, you tend to think that we're all the same people, but really like America is like, fit, we're 50 states, like 50, like 50 Englands. And I think the answer was America will never be 50 Englands. But um, I, I said, a person from Texas is as foreign to me as a person from England about in equal, uh, in equal measure. And I'm, I'm making that point because I think that the perception of the American Civil War really matters from where you're sitting and its importance. And I will tell you this, I think that it's a very important and part of the Southern cultural identity. I don't think so. It's the same in the North. And if it's, and maybe it's becoming that because of the internet and we're able to talk to each other more and get online and argue with each other and things like that. But when I grew up, uh, I went to school, public schools in Metro Detroit. And uh, when I was taught about the American Civil War, I think I think when it was it was first presented in junior high school, it was not it was never to us like it was never presented to us as if like we particularly like being from Michigan were on a side or that we had won or lost or anything. We just kind of learned like, yeah, there was this there was this war, there was slavery beforehand and through the course of the war, slavery was over. And then next chat, you know, next week, we're going to start talking about the expansion westward. So it really wasn't a really big thing at all. In fact, I think uh, in the North, we, we, we talk about the probably War of 1812 a lot more than we do the uh, Civil War because it was fought in and around uh, Detroit and Michigan and the lake. So it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because, um, you know, just a small aside, the War of 1812, a lot of it happened in uh, in Virginia and Maryland and the D.C. area, <laughs> but we almost never talk about it here. It's almost never mentioned. It's almost nowhere yeah. in the consciousness. And even even if you go further south, the War of 1812 is, is just it's just not there. Yeah, so that's interesting. I didn't I didn't even know that. Yeah, because um, the Civil War kind of just wiped all that away. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and the Civil War is abundant in the South. And I, I'll never forget. So I was in the Army. Uh, myself and I, and I, I, the first time I ever met a Southerner, to tell you the truth, um, and a loss causer, um, I was in basic training. And I'll tell you, this is a really nice guy, and we were friends. I, I lost, you know, it's been a long time. I don't want to say old am, but it's been a long time since I was in basic training. Um, and uh, I remember we were eating lunch somewhere out in the field, and he came up to me and he started telling me about why the South should have won the war and why it wasn't about slavery. And at first I thought he was just kind of messing with me. And I was like, Hey, you're not, you're not kidding. Are you? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm serious. And that was the first time that I ever like thought, realized that someone could look at the same event so differently, but you know, for the North, especially somewhere as far as ways, is Michigan. Michigan is so far away from the action. You know, there were no raids. Um, well, did you did you at least learn about the Iron Brigade? No, 
Nothing. Nothing. We never learned about. Um, in fact, if you walked around Metro Detroit and 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 went up to just strange, you know, they always do the dumb interviews and just show how dumb Americans are. <laughs> and you say, uh, you say, did Michigan fight in the Civil War? People are like, uh, was that with George Washington or something? I mean, like. People don't, and, and this and this is really sad. I really didn't start to understand it until I moved down here early on in, well, let's say in the '90s when I was in the army, and and then later on um, the second time around. Uh, it's because, like, I literally live on a battlefield, or not far from it. You know, Nashville. They're one of the biggest battles in the in the West. Was fought in Nashville, and. Um, uh, there, there are monuments and statues, you know, the ones they haven't taken down yet, of course. Uh, but there are, you know, there are, when I wrote my series, my trilogy, all, most of the battles that I describe are ones that I was able to drive to because they were within a day's drive. So I think that when you live in the South, uh, you, you're living in it. And I also think that there is, because the South lost the war, that there is this this bad taste in the mouth, this 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 unresolved angst over it. Whereas for the for people in the low, in the north, we don't walk around thinking like, yeah, we won that. You know, um, that might be changing because of social media now. Because I have seen, you know, I, I belong to a lot of civil war groups, and I've seen, but I. I've seen kind of like a northern reaction now to some of the southern nationalism and and uh, civil war pride, but I think most of those guys are just trolls that are because they know that southerners can be a little tender when you get on that subject, so they like to poke at that. Uh, but there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of there's no sense of northern nationality. Uh, no one says I'm proud to be from the north. That's, you know, there's a lot you said there that I, that I kind of want to, that I kind of want to talk about a little bit. Um, first and foremost, you know, you talk about living in Nashville and you're 15 minutes from about five or six different battlefields. You know, you know, I, me being born and raised in Northern Virginia, this is, this was where the Eastern theater was like, yeah. this was like, you know, I, I didn't fully appreciate, I didn't start to fully appreciate it until I went to uh, college in, um, uh, Farmville, Virginia, which is south of Richmond. It was the last place Lee stopped before he went to Appomattox, uh, was in Farmville. Um, uh, but, um, but he, uh, I, I didn't realize this, but like, you know, in the Piedmont from about anywhere, anywhere in, you know, the region of Virginia, south of Washington, DC and north of Richmond, you know, whether it's over in, you know, over in the Tidewater or it's over in the Shenandoah Valley, any farm field you see, even today, any farm field, any patch of woods, anything, right? Any hilltop had soldiers march through it or buy it or make a stand on it. Um, and, and it's just everywhere. It's, it's like, it's like you can't throw a rock without yeah. hitting somewhere that the war was. And, you know, 
and and like I said, you know, going to places like Harper's Ferry, going to places like Shepherdstown, going to Antietam, going to uh, uh, first Manas the, the Manassas battlefield and the locations of the second Manassas campaign and the Shenandoah Valley. All of these are within an hour of each other, yeah. right? From from any one point, you could get to the any other point I've just mentioned within like an hour. Yeah. And the thing is, is it's like you talk about how in the South you feel this, right? You, there's only one place. There's only one place in the, not counting Antietam. There's only one place I have been north of the Mason Dixon where you get a similar feeling. And that is the town of Gettysburg, yeah. right? The town of Gettysburg is the only place you get a similar feeling that is north of the Mason Dixon. And I think that's because, you know, Shelby, Shelby foot who I invoke a lot because he's one of my favorite writers, but he talks a lot about this stuff because it was his magnum opus was, was this sort of thing. And, he makes the point that the Civil War did, you know, it did more to affect Southern identity and what the South sees themselves as than really the North. As you just said, you know, there's no real Northern identity, not the same way there's a there's a Southern identity. But I don't think I don't think that's the Civil War created that. I think that what the Civil War did was it solidified that which already existed. Yeah. Um, Focused it. Yeah, focused it. Exactly. Gave it gave almost the South its own foundational myth, even if it was one in defeat. And that's something that I think is more powerful than than, you know, than victory. And and the thing is, the point, you know, the point I, I, I'm trying to drive towards is that what separates the South from the North and what the Civil War kind of proves is that the South is in and of itself, it is almost its own civilization. Absolutely, it it's, is, a, it's 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 its own nation. Yeah, so exactly. It's not a state, but it's its own nation. Oh, a nation of people of shared culture and, and values. Absolutely. And and you ask anyone what what is a southern state, and you know they they will tell you know is Virginia a southern state? Well, yeah, obviously. You know, Virginia is not the deep south. You know, and all my friends from Mississippi and Alabama will you know, poke, we have inter-Southern poking fun just as we have, you know, sure. Southern versus Yankee poking fun. It's sure. like, oh, you Virginians, you're not real Southerners. And then I say, oh, well, you deep Southerners act like women. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, um, but uh, the, the, the point is, is that that's, I think, because the South had better foundations as a culture it has it has better roots. It has better a better sense of identity. Yeah. Than the North, I think, ever did. Yeah, because I think Northerners, if we are ever proud of where where we're from, and we are, mm -hmm. we usually, you know, well, I, I think it just goes into Northern culture. You know, the the South was very uh, uh, agrarian. I can never agrarian. say agrarian. Yeah, agrarian. Thank you very much. And the North was, yeah. Uh, uh, as well, but we built cities. We we're more industrial. So most Northerners are like, I'm very proud that I'm from Detroit. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I and there you see a lot of white boys that say they're from Detroit, but they're really from the suburbs. Man, I was born <laughs> in Detroit. Man, I, I think the hospital I was born and burned to the ground at some point. <laughs> uh, I know the house that we lived in when I was a baby burned uh, burned down. Jeez. Yeah, but. Uh, but people are proud to be from Chicago or they're proud to be from uh, New York or, or, or Philadelphia. Uh, here in the South, I, I 
there's state pride, but I think people are proud to be Southern first because it is a, like I said, a shared nationality, a shared culture. And I think it's a culture that is very, as much black as it is white. In fact, I think a lot of the things that we, moder- things that we associate with the South really come out of old black culture that was, that, that was making the food and, and playing the, playing the music and, and, yeah, where a lot of the southern. That's true. I, I, and and that's something that's something that a lot of people, especially the general people in my audience, would, at first reaction to it, would try to hand wave away. But it's it's un it's it's in it's indistinct. What is it? It's what's the word? Undeniable. If oh, you I, spend any time, like um, recently, very recently, I went on a trip, an extended trip across the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I began here. I went through Eastern Tennessee, down through Alabama and Mississippi. I stayed in New Orleans for a little bit. I went up. I went along the Mississippi River. The whole, the most, pretty much the entirety of the trip went up along the Mississippi River. And I'm very glad I did that. I started in New Orleans. Um, I went up into the Mississippi Delta. I went to Natchez. I really like Natchez. Natchez is a. It's it's probably the. It is the best preserved antebellum city. Oh, wow. uh, then to Vicksburg, the worst preserved antebellum city for. But, there someday, both of those places, but Vicksburg. <laughs> Small little aside on the Vicksburg thing is I went to the battlefield when I was there and, you know, I, I grew up going to Gettysburg and Manassas, which were these open set battles where there were maneuvers and there were positions and all this other, it felt like an open place, but Vicksburg, when I was, when I was driving around the national battlefield park, it was really just, it wasn't so much a battlefield. It was more of a crater field. It was like, it was a road around just this open grassy, like grass has overgrown all of it now, but it's like, you know, you can tell, Oh, that was a crater once all of these were crater once. And they have, they actually have to have signs and markers. Like this was where this charge was. This was where that charge was. And the whole thing is marked with monuments and, and memorials all around this road. But it's just it's it it was it was depressing because there wasn't like in Gettysburg and in Manassas you can stand on like Little Round Top or you can stand on the uh, on I think Henry Hill in Manassas and overlook the battlefield and you can imagine the soldiers marching up and all that at Vicksburg I I couldn't at Vicksburg all I imagined was what a World War One movie looked like and wow. It's a, it, it was, that's the one, like everyone says, oh, I go to Gettysburg and I feel drained and I feel sad. I never felt sad going to Gettysburg, but Vicksburg, I felt, I felt drained going to Vicksburg. And it, it was a similar feeling to when I go to Confederate cemeteries in small Virginia towns. But um, anyway, I went up through Vicksburg and through Memphis and St. Louis all the way up to uh, Chicago is where I ended the trip. And I spent a significant amount of time in Chicago and I, I very much what you're talking about here and sort of like the North being city centric, urban centric. Yeah. I've noticed that. And really you, very few Chicagoans would be, you know, are not proud to be from Chicago and very few Chicagoans like can tell, wouldn't be happy to tell you at least some aspect of their city's history, even if they are a bit of one of the newer generations. Cause you know, there are people who are legends and heroes to Chicagoans that, you know, that I, I, you know, I, I might know their names. I might not even know their names. Right. Um, you know, 
Potter is a last name that a Chicagoan would know. Uh, you know, Burnham is a last name that a Chicagoan would know. These are all people I can't even remember their first name because that's. Like, but like, you know you, <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like it's like in the South. You know, in the South, you can point to oh Nathan Bedford Forrest, who is a Mississippian, right? Or you point to uh, Albert Sidney Johnston, who was a Texan, or 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 and you know. And as you say, a Texan is more foreign to me than is as foreign to me as an Englishman. Well, in many with the South, it's not there's less of that in the inter-South. Like a Virginian can kind of understand a Mississippian more than a more than even a Marylander, to be honest, because they drive terribly. But um where we but, Yankees hate each other. Oh yeah. Like I despise Cleveland. I, <laughs> I mean no offense to anybody from Cleveland, but I hate like all the sports teams. I hate the Indians, you know. I uh, I hate all the the, the Chicago teams, I and mean, they are bitter rivals. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know it's funny. The South has some of that, but it's it's more in like college football, and it's not. It's it's and, that, and that's the thing though, right? Is the diff the South has its own little versions of harsh rivalries, even in sports teams, but it's not in city by city, like. Right. You ask someone from Houston, oh, what do you think of someone from New Orleans? And he's like, well, I don't really care. It doesn't, it doesn't animate them. Um, but the university, really, the Ivy League is New England, sure, but universities in the United States, I think the way we understand them is a Southern institution. And they are where they are a um uh, at least in the sense of like college football as a place to tack your identity on. They are they are almost like it's the way we get our inter-southern conflicts. I'm an old Miss fan, right? I love Old Miss. I have no reason to love Old Miss. I'm not even from Mississippi. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's because I hate both colleges in Virginia, right? <laughs> but this is another thing, is it's like, you know, Walker Percy, who's another great Southern writer, um, friend of Shelby Foot, uh, childhood friend of Shelby Foot. Walker Percy makes this point in one of his essays somewhere that um the South is one of those things that many, in many ways, you kind of need to be outside of it to really appreciate it. And really, Southerners, a lot of the time, Southerners have to move to a different part of the South to really understand and appreciate that specific part of the South they were from. And it's not, as you said, it's not monolithic. Like in in the North, in this very city-centric sort of culture sort of way of being identity i guess as much as i hate the word identity um you know chicago is a thing you can point to and that exists right right uh, detroit even you know people make jokes about it you can point to it that exists cleveland exists right, right? but you point to like michigan well michigan has always been kind of like a fuzzy con they're, they're, they're you know to sort of finish up what i'm saying it's the difference of orientation it's the difference of like, you know, and you even saw stuff like this over in the old country in Germany, like the Hanseatic cities, uh, Hamburg, Bremen, all of that saw themselves as cities first and not as a part of the wider German Germany. But you go down to Southern Germany, Bavaria is a concept. Swabia is a concept. Even the Rhineland is a concept. So yeah. I, I, I've, I've been talking for, for, for a very long time. <laughs> no, but I think that is a, a, a interesting analogy, especially when you think about Germany too, because Germany only becomes a, a, a nation in, I believe, uh, eighteen seventy with the uh, 
the end of the Franco-Prussian War. Oh yeah. And so in a lot of and so when you think about like like Bavaria was a kingdom where some of those other places were city states. You know, you have you have Prussia and Austria and you have some smaller kingdoms in between, but then you have a ton of little tiny principalities and city states. So then the idea if you think about it, it's really quite something that they get to become this very nationalistic um uh, identity as you get, you know, of course you see where that <laughs> goes when you get mid 20th century. But um, I, I think one of the things that does kind of make the, uh, the, the South have this kind of nationhood to them is because they went through this shared, because, you know, let's yeah. face it, the civil war was a lot worse for the South than it was for the North. I mean, there were some border States that had, some raiding and things like that, but just the absolute dev devastation. You know, you go to Detroit uh, or you go to Michigan. I I know that we have a, a monument monument downtown that's dedicated to the uh, Civil War. I don't think I ever even looked at it until like I got into the Civil War and came mm -hmm. back home and looked at that. Uh, but you know, there's certainly a lot of Michiganders went off and died, but we didn't have people didn't starve to death. We didn't have farms burned. Um, purposely specifically. Right. Oh, absolutely. That was, and that yeah. was, that was the hardest part I think about it. Is, yeah. It was all purposeful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and so because of that, it, Michigan doesn't look towards something like the civil war for, for identity, because we get, like I said, I think you'll, you'll hear more about the war of 1812 because that was fought in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, it just, you have to have, you know, it's kind of like when I, I lived in Japan for a while. I taught English mm. there. And um, I became really good friends with other Anglophones, like really good friends, like better friends. And I'm still good friends with those guys, better and closer friends than a lot of people I grew up with. And the reason being is because we were all strangers in a strange land. We're living in this country where, quite frankly, we were rejected. There was a lot of uh, xenophobia, xenophobia, especially in Tokyo. And we were physically different looking than other people. There was a, uh, it was hard to understand the language. And, and so you get this kind of like foxhole buddy and we, you get really tight because you're, you're experiencing this kind of trauma uh, together, this hardship together that makes you tighter, makes you have more of a, a unified identity. Well, I think that's kind of what the South went through with the Civil War, uh, regardless of who and why and what and whatever, it still was something that devastated the South. I mean, uh, this is an interesting statistic. Tennessee, every single county in Tennessee had combat in it. Every single county. Tennessee was marched, it, it probably has. It's probably it is the Virginia of the Western Theater. Yeah, it's uh, every, every bit of it was marched over. So uh, I, I get it. And I understand why, you know, even my, you know, my girlfriend, she's a she's a liberal. She's a, a, a but she's a southern girl. And even she bristles sometimes if I <laughs> or I make fun. I mean, she gets a little you know gets her cackles up a little bit if i if she thinks i'm being too hard on on the south and the other funny thing is too you you mentioned that how like when you go somewhere else you don't realize what you're like until you see yourself amongst other people when we go north 
um, you know, Laura's from Nashville. She has what I call a Nashville accent, mm. which is, you know, you get farther away from Nashville, you, you know, they start stretching the vowels and the real southern <laughs> out, right? But people in Nashville, even natives of Nashville, don't really have that strong accent. Yeah. They sweeten their vowels just a little bit more than we do in the north. But when Laura goes north and when I take her up to Detroit and bring her on my family, she starts turning into Scarlett O'Hara. She <laughs> becomes, becomes more of a cartoon version of, you know, her accent starts coming out more. And uh, it's just really and I think I do the same thing, too. I think that um, my my Detroit accent will probably get thicker the farther I get from Nashville, because that's where you can really tell the difference where I. You know, I get, well, you ain't from around here, are you? <laughs> well, and yeah, and I, I noticed that. And I, it's funny you bring that up. I, I do that as well. Um, you know, being from Northern Virginia, Northern Virginians, not even Robert E. Lee ever spoke with a Southern accent. They always spoke the, what's called the mid-Atlantic accent, um, yeah. which is cosmopolitan English as is understood now. It's yeah. the accent I'm currently speaking in. It's the accent all commercial and usually news reporters speak in. Yes. Right, because it's the most proper version of English. Yes. Um, it's like, and I don't really, I don't really have a Southern accent, and I might start affecting, like, you know, for example, if I'm talking about what I'm doing on Wednesday, or how I would like um, uh, how I, what, how I like my tobacco or something like that. Yeah. Right. That might be the the only time I ever, but I do that more, you know, when I go to other places, even when I go further south. Right. Matter of fact, when I go further south, further south, I. I try to, you know, you know, I try to mix the proper sort of mid-Atlantic dialect, speaking like I am a professor to you, while combining it with a, the occasional vowel shift now and again. But you know, it's funny you mentioned that, and bringing that back to the sort of main point you were making is you don't understand yourself till you're, till you're around other people. I think, as a matter of fact, this is why I think America itself. In Americana, moving beyond just the, the 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 North and South divide, America itself is the single most important part of the West of Western civilization that currently exists because it is the West that understood itself outside of itself. It yeah. is the it is the people you know. I'm going to be frank. America was born in racial conflict between uh, the white man and the red man. America was born in a race war, like like you know the Creek War, the Creek War that Andrew Jackson fought. That was a race war. You know, I, was it was it Tecumseh? I think it was Tecumseh was going around saying, um, "Yes, we're going to have this this grand state of all of the red tribes, and we are going to kill all of the white men and push them back into the sea." Yeah. And that was a racial war along racial lines. Yeah. And, you know, you know, to say nothing of the slaves that were over here, not, there's, there's a whole thing with the antebellum stuff. And, and um, the first refugee crisis that America ever dealt with was actually Haiti. It was Haiti after mm -hmm. the Haitian Revolution. Wow. Um, all of the Frenchmen fleeing Haiti came to America because that was they went to they went to three places generally. They went to New Orleans, they went to Charleston, and they went to Philadelphia. Those were the three places they went. And the you know this is a point that one of my mentors uh, Thomas seven 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 has made on another on another show. Um, when these you know Frenchmen came here right from Haiti, and a lot of them started talking to these Southern Anglo planters. 
because that was the high society. And they were saying to them, well, look, you may think that you have this whole population of Africans under control. Uh, you may think that you are capable of keeping them in line, but we had the guns of the nation of France behind us and we still lost. Yeah. So this is, and the thing is, is that no one in the South really started taking that seriously until Nat Turner. Yeah. When Nat Turner occurred, that is when the South kind of, you know, this whole sort of America being founded in racial conflict, that's when it really started reasserting itself, you know, not just being with the Native Americans, but with all of it, right? And this is why, you know, for better or for ill, this is how it is. This is how it still is to this day. This is why in America, the concept of race is something that not only exists, but is at the center of more or less everyone's existence, yeah. whether you are white or non-white. Um, and, you know, there's a great Southern politician, I forget his name, who said, uh, the best part about the South is that we realize that racial questions are too important to ever be answered. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, America is, is, I have another friend called Zante. He's a, uh, I think, you know, he, he's, he's some kind of Hispanic. I don't want to misname it because he'll get super mad at me if I do that because the Hispanics who are, you know, exactly the same as this other Hispanic country right next to them get really mad when you call them the wrong version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah when, when it's like, anyway, <laughs> but, um, but he says that he, he made this point and he's also with me on this Americana project. He makes the point that America is what happens when you take the white Christian man and you put him in the wilderness. That's that, you know, and that kind of, that's kind of evocative of Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis. But I really do believe that to be the truth. This is what Western civilization looks like when you take it and you put it somewhere else outside of the West. And, you know, the civil war bringing this sort of back away from America and back towards our topic of discussion the Civil War was kind of almost one of the consequences of that, right? Almost, almost one of the consequences of of, the of this. Of what? What's up? It was. It was the reckoning. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was the reckoning of of two different ways that one could look at race. Um, you know, and I'm not going to go as far as to say it's you know you know the racist or the anti-racist way because you know. I think that's a stupid term invented in the 1930s by Trotskyites to sort of obfuscate the actual problem, which is how do we deal with people of different races living within 30 miles of each other? Yeah. Right. And yeah. the North and the South had two different solutions to that. And, you know, of, of, in many ways, um, in many ways, the civil war was, I don't really know if it decided who would write, who was right, but I think it decided who won. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think also that if you look at like the old world, for example, like I lived in Portugal for a while mm. and, um, I, and I learned to speak some Portuguese because I spoke, I, I, my minor was in Spanish, so it wasn't mm. really that hard. And if you live there, it's easy to pick up a language, especially have a background. And uh, I spoke Portuguese in a certain way uh, because I lived in Vedras, which is the way mm. they would it, which is about 40 miles outside of Lisbon. Uh, but if you go to Lisbon, they have, there are words that they use in Toshvedrish that they don't use in Lisbon and vice versa. The accent even changes. And so you get very homogenized people who have always lived in these areas. Now, Europe is changing a mm -hmm. lot, you know, but, uh, it, it, but people 
in Europe, especially in the 19th century, had this kind of like homogenous life of everybody that in and around them spoke the same way, uh, looked the same, all that kind of things. When you have something like America, you know, what they call it the mixing pot, you have people coming from, you know, all over Europe and then bringing people over from Africa. And then you also had people coming over from, from Asia as well. And not to mention the people who are coming up through Mexico and, and, and the uh, Latin America. All of a sudden you have this like wide open space where people are pouring in and they're pouring in from different places where you don't have this kind of homogenous, homogenous groups of people anymore. You're beginning to, to, to spill into each other and have multi-cultures and races and, ways of thinking and uh yeah it's it's um it's messy yeah and you know it's interesting you bring that up because i think that also outlines another difference between the north and the south is that the north um was kind of the exception specifically like old new england it was the exception of this of this at least in you know even during the 1890s it wasn't outside of coastal cities it wasn't as hard hit uh, with demographic change the way other parts of the country were. But, you know, at least, you know, even especially during the, the pre-Civil War and the Civil War times, like, you know, states up in the North were something like 90-something percent white um, in pretty much all locations. Um, very few, if any, uh, non-white people lived up there. Mm -hmm. And so that means they, for better or for worse, they just did not have the exposure to those people on the everyday basis, observing their behavior, observing their customs, how they act, how they, you know, are in the world. You know, the South, the South, uh, probably since, you know, 1619, um, had to deal with their, their section had to deal with the fact that, that, you know, Mississippi is something I think, I think it's, I don't know if it's 40 or if it's 50% black. Mm -hmm. Um but they have to deal with the fact that in some cases, in some places, you know, whites were the minority, you yeah. know, and, you Which know, South Carolina was for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and the thing is, is that this brings about a very different way of conceptualizing the world, of seeing the world um, and of understanding and treating these people in the way that one did. Right. You know, someone once told me that um, nor. Uh, Southerners hate blacks in theory, but love them in practice. And Northerners love blacks in theory and hate them in practice. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it depends on where you're from. Now, see, when I went to school, mm -hmm. um, we had uh, – I, I went to uh, – like when I went to Southfield Lathrop, we had a really just naturally diverse uh, mm -hmm. population. I went to school with Muslim Arabs. Um, Catholic um, Chaldeans. So I don't know if you know what Chaldean is. Yeah. Catholic Chaldeans, um, Jews. In fact, it was a very Jewish area, um, and uh, and and blacks and Hispanics and uh, and, and a few white kids. Um, were there were there fist fights every day? <laughs> no, because you, you, you want to know why? Because because we kind of grew up. They were always everybody was always around, mm. you know. And like I had friends, uh, you know. I I had a Jewish friend that he you and know, I we both played guitar. Um, I had uh, black friends I ran around with. So I think if you're if you're used to just seeing these different people, you they're mm. not all and they're not just different. Uh, mm. And you you see what I'm saying is no, yeah. It's uh, it, it, so. Now that's not all of the north, mm -hmm. but like, but I just 
grew up in a in a in a neighborhood that was very integra integrated that that like it was so to, so to have these ideas of races being really different mm -hmm. um wasn't was something that's alien that was alien to me as a child mm -hmm. um I, I know that's not everybody's experience but well yeah and then and that's that's not so much because um uh it's not so much because races aren't different it's more of just because you were around them that it was normal it was normal like it was the same thing with me up here in northern virginia in northern virginia growing up i was around a very large number of uh of subcontinental indians Okay. Uh, a very large number number of Chinese, a very large number, just because of the tech sector out here. Those were the kinds of people who were moving here and living yeah, here. Yeah. And so it's like a similar thing occurred, you know, early on in my life. And it wasn't until I started going deeper south and, you know, looking at this place in the abstract is it's like, you know, of course, we're different. We're not it's not that we can't live along each other, but we're different. We have different ways of acting, different ways of being, different ways of organizing ourselves. You walk into a room, you know, with uh, five Indian people, five black people and five white people. First thing you're going to do, probably not the only thing, but the first thing you're going to do is walk up to that group of white people just instinctually. It's mm -hmm. how it is. And, um, you know, but the thing is, is it's like the South going back to that statement I made, racial questions are too important to ever be answered. <laughs> the South kind of always, I think, understood that to some extent or another. And, you know, if there's one thing, this is kind of a, a, a critique of the South uh, and, you know, also one of its strengths. The South is really, really lazy and slow to action and, you know, conservative in the sense of like, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's always worked this way, you know. Which is for, the core tenet of conservatism. Is oh, of course. Yeah. Change anything. It's fine the way it was or is or maybe it was even better the way it was. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, 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 and you're right on that. But it's like. Until it doesn't, right. until, until the hot blood, you know, until you insult someone's sister and then, or someone's mother and then fists are flying and, yeah. you know, someone's coming to your house in the middle of the night with the, or, or, or if you just, I said this on the interview, or if you just put a fence post three feet in the wrong place, someone's about to shoot you. Yeah. Like I, it honor might be, culture. what's up? The honor culture. Yeah, right? exactly. It has a lot of that kind of, um, Victorian honor culture where, you know, like, for example, during the time of the Civil War, um, there were a lot more personal duels with <laughs> Southern officers than there were like in the North where that was almost a thing of the past at that time. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you're right. And I, you know, it comes from like, you know, you could say it's the Scots-Irish border blood, you know, coming over and the, 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 that kind of their conflict with the Indians that those tendencies got not only exacerbated, but like selected for, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, but at the end of the day, it's like the South, the South is the only place where race matters so much that you see it on a day-to-day -day basis but also it's when you think about the south it's something kind of beyond race it's something it, it is its own civilizational concept you know with foundations with um uh, you know with different aspects to it and with the north you know ironically even though race isn't something you see on a day-to-day -day basis i part of me feels like that all that the North really had, and I'm, I'm I, what I was speaking of, not so much Detro the Detroit you grew up in. I was more of speaking of the rural New England 
of yeah. farms in in New Hampshire and Vermont and Ma like old 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 New England, yeah. not like the not like the the Northwest, the um, like old New England in which the majority of Northern armies came from is is I, ironically I think race played a bigger role in those places. It was just under the surface and it was never spoken of in that effect. It was they didn't see them as much. Like yeah, said, that there wasn't a there wasn't a whole lot of a large population of non-whites living mm. in New England at the time, and 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 if and if there were, you know, the, you had a lot of people like um, uh, uh, Fred, Frederick Douglass and well-spoken freedmen. Yeah, yeah. And so, so obviously it's like, and you know, even if you watch the movie Gettysburg, it's like, you know, or you read the novel, the killer angels, um, you know, um, both. Colonel, Colonel, Colonel Chamberlain speaks about this. He's like, you know, all the freedmen I knew, I didn't know a lot, but I knew the ones in, in Bangor and, in um, uh, and, you know, in Portsmouth and, and, or Portland rather. And, um, uh, they were all well-spoken, educated and all of that. Right. Um, you take a trip to the Mississippi Delta. <laughs> it's not so much that anymore. And the thing is, is that like, not only, not only did they not get exposure, they got, they got exposure to the, 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 the best, most well-read and, and the, the highest, right. the, the most excellent of, yeah. of that group of people. And with the South, you know, there were well-spoken freedmen who stayed in the South, but it's like, with the South, it's like they they were more exposed to the, the the sort of the full spectrum, the best of and the worst of. Well, and the also the you know, the thing also to remember is that it was illegal to educate slaves in the South. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, a lot of people did anyway because it was very useful to have you know a slave keep your books and, and run your household mm -hmm. uh, and even teach your children. Mm -hmm. But there's it's kind of a self fulfilling prophecy when they, you know, there's a dehumanization where they think that somehow blacks are not capable of the same things that whites are mm -hmm. but it it you make that true by denying them the same education that uh that the whites are are, are getting uh during that time so your experience with someone who's black is probably going to be with someone who's very uneducated um and uh and it doesn't know some of the basic things that as a white person growing up in the south that you, that you would understand whereas in the north um i don't know i mean i'm not first of all racism is, is uh endemic everywhere and of course there was racism in the north and you know no one anybody thinks it's, that the north was as far as as far as i'm concerned it's a basic foundational aspect of reality it's a yeah. neutral thing it's something that exists but um, you're likely because in the north there is no law against teaching mm -hmm. uh, you know enslaved people how to read and write that you're more likely to um to encounter a black person who is on an intellectual an equal intellectual level well yeah and you're you're right on that but and and one of the things that does though is that like even back in the pre-civil war days and even the post-civil war days is that generally when you're only ever exposed to the best individuals of a group right you're obviously going to think that that group is of a higher because you're going to think the best individuals are the average individuals yeah right conversely conversely yeah. so if you're only your your only interaction are uneducated poor or enslaved mm -hmm. 
people, then you're going to think that that's how they all are. Well, you're, you're, you're correct on that. And that's, and that's the, this is where the nuance comes in and why, you know, you know, going back to my, you know, wonderful, I'm going to, I've, I've invoked this twice. I'm going to invoke this a third time. Racial questions are too important to ever be answered. And the thing is, is that, you know, another funny nuance of the South that you only really ever understand by getting here is it's like, we put the law in place, but we never follow it. It's like you talk, you, you talked about how it was illegal to educate slaves in the South, right? Everyone fucking educated their slaves. Everyone taught them how to read the Bible, more or less. Everyone, you know, obviously it differed. But for the most part, on average, everyone, you know, obviously they didn't all know how to read, but most people didn't know how to read back then. Um, illiteracy rates didn't start raising until after the Civil War, actually, when industrialism really took off. Um, but, you know, you know, it, it, it's just it's a more it's it's so fucking complicated and it's so nuanced and you have so many people with so many different perspectives on it and saying, oh, well, this was good or this wasn't that bad or this was terrible and all that. It really it, it, it's it's something that it goes back to illustrating what's the core concept of America. The core concept of America is, you know, it's an experiment. It's the American experiment. But part of me feels like it's like what happens America is almost like the proving ground of the rest of the world is what I, is how I say it. It's like, what happens when we take these people from all across the world and we give them this basically free area to play around in, uh, what comes from that? Yeah. Right. Great things can come from that. Terrible things can come from that. I mean, you know, I, I, and really what the civil war the civil war kind of was the, the, the first instance of that. The civil war was really the first instance in which two differing perspectives that were homegrown that came from this American continent influenced by other places, but came from this American continent ever came into conflict. Yeah. And I think it's also like a, um, a, a rebirth and an awakening from like, for example, like slavery. It's amazing to me to think now that, that slavery existed in what we call the land of the free mm -hmm. uh, as, as nearby historically as 160, 170 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, and because outside of American slavery, I think of slavery when, when I think of slaves, I think of the ancient world, I mm -hmm. think, you know, the Egyptians building pyramids and, and the Romans having slaves. And, uh, and so I feel like the the American Civil War was kind of a um, um, a shedding of this ancient, this old world mentality. I mean, the first slaves come over in uh, 1619 and, and and start building from there. And you know, when you think about the early 1600s, it's just a very different world and a different um, a different view of humanity that they had back then than they did in the mid 19th century. Mm. There was a lot of modernization going on. And so this is like this last vestige of this ancient world, this ancient idea of owning other human beings. Um, and I, I kind of think of like, when you read about, uh, about slavery and about some of these, some of the, like even uh, you read uh, Robert E. Lee, talk mm -hmm. about slavery you get a sense that the southerners at that time knew slavery was bad i, mean, I, I think most of them knew it was bad but to them it was almost like a, a necessary evil 
that they they believe like it's too bad that we got to do this but it's the way of the world and i almost feel like the the, the American Civil War was kind of like an intervention. You, know, you got a friend who's addicted to something that's that's hurting them, that's that's killing them. And so you, you've seen those like the interventions where all of a sudden like, hey, why are all my friends and family here? And like, yeah, we're going to get you help and it's going to be painful. And I think that it took something like that, a very painful experience for everybody involved to finally break us from this bad habit that we just weren't going to do um easily that 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 we were going to go kicking and screaming with this i think i i think the next thing that's going to be like that is getting off of fossil fuels i think it's almost i think there's a, a parallel there because we have the technology to walk away from fossil fuels for the most part but it is so deeply ingrained in our economy uh just like slavery was back in the uh uh, uh in the 19th century that it would almost take something like an armed conflict you talk about the next civil war that's one of the things where like people are not going to give up gasoline cars and 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 oil until they absolutely have to well the thing is and you know i and i i see what what point you're making with that what what world do you come from and the two questions you know uh, your point about how the South is this vestige of this ancient world. Well, that's very much what the South saw themselves as, especially yeah. in the antebellum period. They saw themselves as like this continuity of the classical tradition, yeah. right? Of specifically yeah. the Roman tradition of pietas, yes. right? The, the, the agrarian landholding uh, individual. Um, Even the architecture. With yes. The houses, oh, of course. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You go to Virginia, you see it all the place, the Greek revival and all of that. And they're very beautiful homes and I'm glad they still stand. Um, the question I have to ask, though, upon encountering this 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 view you have is, um, uh, at what point does it become uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater? At what point does it come when the correction is an overcorrection and is actually, you know, has become as bad as the initial problem was? Right. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you think about it, it's like uh, amputating a, a leg because of gangrene because yeah. it's, it's very painful. It's very painful and, and no one wants to lose that leg. But if you don't cut the leg off, it's going it, to, it's going to affect the whole body and kill, kill the host. So it, it's, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, I think that almost with anything, you know, truth, there's facts and there's truth and truth is very subjective. And there are times where people overreact and, mm-hmm. and overcompensate uh, to, um, uh, to fix a problem, uh, that maybe the solution was worse than, uh, than the symptoms. And then there are other times where people, uh, act too late and, uh, and, and let things go too far before they do the painful. And so it's, I'm sure there's all sorts of fallacies about, um, you know, whether it's, you know, fearing the slippery slope and so intervening too soon. And uh, or um, if we just give it time, it'll correct itself. And there's got to be a fallacy named after that as well. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I, I guess, Paul, the, the thing is, is it, it, it would be really nice if there was a very simple solution. If this, then this. The problem is, is that every problem is unique. And the thing takes finesse. 
Well, yeah, and, and the thing is, though, is that like, you know, and I made this point in my my second American Civil War article I released recently. Um, and I actually think this is a this is actually a good way to transition into sort of like, you know, closing thoughts. Um, okay. But I, I put this point in this American Civil War, the second American Civil War article I wrote recently, which is. Um, and now I've now I've forgotten, completely forgotten the point. <laughs> I, 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 I knew this was going to happen. Um, I do that all the time. Paul. Yeah. What, what What was I talking about, real quick, before I before I we're going to keep clo closing thoughts before, before that point before I mentioned the closing closing thoughts. I had talked about intervention and when yeah when's the proper point and it's hard mm -hmm. to find that there's no there's okay no yeah, yeah I, I remember this yeah yeah okay so the thing is is that there's there's these intractable differences there's these intractable differences that come about and. If, if there was a silver bullet, you know, as we say in the service, there's a silver bullet to fix those intractable differences, it would have already been done. It would have been done and there would have, the, the differences won't, wouldn't have been intractable. You know, my buddy, Raging Mandrel, who's a retired O3 in the Navy, mm -hmm. um, he says, he says to me every time I talk to him, he says, uh, you know, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. There's no one single solution. And, you know, what's happening right now, you know, Today, as much as it was back in, you know, 1858, as much as it was, you know, in the leading up to the Civil War, which was just the culmination of all of the maneuvering that had happened in the decades prior, is a clash of two ways of seeing how the world should be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that clash is not is not multidimensional. Quite frankly, sir, I think we have two very we have two somewhat not very, but somewhat different ways of seeing the world. Right. And in, in how things ought to be, how things are organized, what is the basic fundamental things of reality? And the thing is, is that. And, you know, we're closer together than than some others, you know, oh, yeah. there, are, there are some others that, you know, I couldn't even bring onto the show to talk to them about. Um, but it's like. What's what's going to come to a head and what what came to a head in 1860, right? You know, what's going to come to a head, I think, in the next couple of years is a result of the same sort of thing that America has been doing since its conception, which is taking concepts from the outside world, uh, largely from Europe, because that's what the tradition it's in, but taking traditions from the outside world, from Europe and some other parts of the world and, and seeing and basically coming up with two opposing worldviews that then go on to kill each other <laughs> in yeah. one way or another. And that's kind of, that's kind of my, my whole thing on it. You know, do, do, what, what do you have to say about, what do you think? What do you think? Am I, am I off base really, on that? Yeah. Not, not to get, get us into, cause we can go down the rabbit hole with mm. this. But I'll tell you that first of all, uh, and this may be our differing worldviews mm. and I, and I'll, I'll codify that a little bit more. Um, but I think that even though there may not be a perfect silver bullet, you mm. should always be looking for one. And and the, that quest for that silver, silver bullet, you may never find it, but you're still going to be able to find things to make things better. And I think what it comes down to, and I think what we're really talking about is conservatism and liberalism. And I, I as a historian like yourself, um, mm. I, I, I look at a lot of different periods from like, you know, I'm a big fan of the uh, French Revolution and, and the Napoleonic Age and, and of course, our Civil War and things like that. And 
And the, the thing is, is there's always this struggle between conservatism and liberalism. And so I, um, I but it's scalable because what, because for example, um, you know, a lot of people look at our forefathers as being like these conservative stalwarts, you know, but, but they were actually radical liberals for their time. Mm -hmm. So what is a liberal and what is a, a conservative? And I, I think it's a worldview. And, and, and I'll tell you this, I think the, the problem is, is that they're both right and they're both wrong. And I think they need each other. I think, I think, he, so I will say this, that, that the difference between a liberal and a conservative is a liberal looks at the world and says, oh man, all of this is wrong. We got to change this. This is wrong. This is wrong. We got to change it. A conservative, and sometimes, you know, their idea that their change is worse than what it was before or crazy or it's not going to work. A conservative looks at the world and says, no, 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 no. Everything is fine. Don't mess this up. It's perfect the way it is. Or it was a little better before we should go back to that. Now, once again, they might be right. It might be better the way it was or it's perfect the way it is now. Uh, but they can also uh, be kind of a stick in the mug that drags progress. So I think that having a strong left and a strong right helps us create like you need the liberals coming up with a crazy idea and 19 of the crazy liberal ideas are stupid but maybe that 20th one the conservatives like okay we'll go ahead with that and and so that you have kind of like a a um a measured path forward mm. into the future as we advance as, as a culture well what you what you what you've hit on there you know liberal and conservative um a lot of people like a lot of younger guys hate those two words because they were they were accurate i think 20 30 years ago um back in a different time um than they or even 10 years ago um but what what they do i think talk about what they do i think address is this sort of eternal truth of tradition versus progress yeah. right you know that's that's sort of the fundamental basis of it and you know you're you're correct that both are necessary tradition you know if you have no tradition if you have you know they say you know those who have no past have no future right. you know a tree without roots isn't going isn't going to grow right yeah. you know tradition is important because it's the memory of who you are it's what yeah. you are you know yeah. tr tradition is where you draw identity from where you draw uh concepts of self from right, right? you um, what's coming because you know where you came from oh exactly yeah innovation you know progress is is the introduction of novelty of any kind you right. know whether that be whether that be in grand concepts of the brotherhood of man or in um you know terrible conflicts which haven't been felt for a while novelty is novelty it's introducing something not yet experienced and you know for the past for the past probably a couple hundred years, that novelty has been the idea of progress, of sort of this this grand march onwards. And, you know, and I've made this point several times, but I think what we're seeing now, especially with younger generations kind of, you know, kind of getting sick of this whole project, whatever this project was in the first place. Like, are we going to create a utopia on Earth? Well, it's not coming about and things are only getting worse the more we try it. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know. I mean, it's 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 just this idea that like, well, these from this realization that it's like, well, you know, we've 
all of the tradition has kind of been blown out of the water by the transition into the modern world. Now we don't really have roots, right? There's been too much one way or another. Um, what's up? Yeah, there's kind of a rejection of tradition. Yeah. Like like everything has to be remade and renamed and rebranded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I see that. I see that a lot. Well, yeah, and it's like, and it's like what that does is it's 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 what I said when we were talking before the show is iconoclasm, right? Yeah. Iconoclasm very rarely goes anywhere good. Yeah. Um, all it does is it piss pisses the other person off. Just a little bit is is okay, but when it goes too far, then it 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 destroys it destroys everything. Well, I'm I'm all for I'm all for throwing out the names of people who are you know who who aren't really relevant anymore and people don't really remember. But it's like you know not 10 years ago people the statement robert e lee was a, was a great individual or something something innocuous like that mm -hmm. you know that was uncontroversial you know like it, right. it wasn't really the the civil war was kind of a done and forgotten thing the all the differences have been resolved there was a compromise like yeah. you know the north the the northerners allowed the southerners shelby foot talks about this yeah the northerners allowed the uh, southerners to sort of you know they agree that like they fought bravely for a cause they believed in. Right. right. And, you know, their statues and their memories and their tradition and their pride was allowed to remain. Yeah. Um, and the Southerners kind of uh, in exchange for that kind of admitted, it was probably best that the union endured, that the yeah. union stayed together. Yeah. Um, a piece that we could live with. Yeah, exactly. And so the thing is, is that, you know, only really in the last four years have you started to see this get, you know, someone go to the graveyard and start digging up the freaking, the freaking. And I don't think once you dig up one, when you start picking at old wounds, you know, it's only going to aggravate things. And, and, you know, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we can't, we can put the genie back in the bottle now, but it's like at the end of the day. And I guess the reason why we're on here, why there, why there even, I felt there was a need for an Americana podcast in the first place and why we needed to discuss the civil war in the first place was because we don't really know who we are anymore. We don't have an identity. We don't America, America has forgotten what America is. Yeah. Right. And I guess the only way, you know, you know, the only way for someone to remember or something to remember what it is, is, to bring about as much pain, to dig up as much bad memories, to to bring about to 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 wake as many sleeping dogs and to settle as many old scores as possible, and I guess that's that's the only way where well, I am. Uh, it's done with malicious intent. I think that a lot of these things are done because they know it hurts. Yeah, they, I, I think I think so. You know. They want to attack the other sides. The other side, the other side holds sacred. They want to attack it because they want to hurt. Mm. It to be painful. Um, I gotta say this, Paul. I I think I I'm an optimist. Well, I, actually, mm. what I am is I am a what they call a silver lining uh, pessimist. I was <laughs> I was everything, but I think things are getting better. And I really do. I, and first of all, I think a lot of struggles, if you look at history, and you're probably going to not agree with me, but then maybe two days later, you're like, maybe there's something to this. I think a lot of times the struggle is not the left and the right. It's the far left with the moderate left. <laughs> and, and and the right just kind of standing back and watching us tear, tear each other apart. Um, I believe that, uh, that the the reaction to Donald Trump being elected president mm. caused 
uh, it, it, it caused an, an hysteria amongst the far left. Mm-hmm. It allowed the far, the very far left to become more predominant and more vocal, more mainstream. And it really kicked off what they call the cultural war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting to see now is moderate leftists. And I'll, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I am like just left of center. That's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Moderate leftists are beginning to uh, find their backbones and and kind of stand up to some of this hysteria and say, you know what, I'm not cool with that. You're going too far. And I think that now that, you know, the, the evil orange man is gone, uh, that hysteria, those voices are becoming less and less. Um, people aren't listening to them anymore. Mm-hmm. Because because that fear, that anger, that outburst, I feel like you know everything's Donald Trump's fault, mm-hmm. right? Because I feel like in some ways he not only caused some radicalization of the right, but really pushed the left very far to the left. So you created this huge gap between the left and the right and where things got really ugly. But I feel like we're I feel like things are getting a little better as far. And I think a lot of it is because, like I said, I think the moderate left are, are beginning to kind of stand up and not be so afraid to, to uh, speak their opinions and say, you know, what, I'm not fine with some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing is, and in, in, yeah, I, I there might be something to that. Um you know, at least in, at least as far as the left is concerned, the only, the only thing I have to sort of just say, not so much in response to it, but just sort of say, I will see if that was too little too late. Yeah. We'll see to, you know, prevent these and to prevent these intractable differences. Matter of fact, I hold in a, I hold a, um, I hold a really, uh, really contrarian opinion that most of the youth on the um, uh, on what you know what you would call the far right, which always it's always following behind. When the far left starts getting a lot of cultural importance, the far right is not very far behind, and uh, yeah. also getting cultural importance. You know, I, honestly, honestly, and I've found most people, most people, um, uh, in one or the other. Uh, you know, most honestly, most people in my audience would call themselves far right. And I don't even think they're accurate when they're calling themselves that because, you know, because they're normal, moderate people who are civil and discuss with most everyone. Are. Yeah. Most people are in the middle. And, yeah. and, you know, and I actually think this is I have this theory, too. Like when we think about, uh, you know, this continuum of left mm-hmm. and right, but I almost feel like it's a, it's a sphere in which when you go very far to the left and very far to the right, they start overlapping. Yeah. Horseshoe theory and all that. Yeah. Totalitarianism. And, you know, you see whether it's proud boys or Antifa, I mean, you, you start getting, or, you know, Soviets or Nazis, you start seeing people who are seemingly on the opposite sides of the spectrum, but they're so far apart that they're beginning Mm -hmm. to overlap and begin to look a lot like each other. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And honestly, I mean, I, it'll happen however it's going to happen. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I know we didn't exactly end on the Civil War, but I think I think that's a that's actually a good spot to end it on. Um, do you uh, you have anything you would like to plug? Yeah, I'll just real quick. You know, I, I wrote a, a, a trilogy on the Civil War. And what I tell people because, you know, I live in the South and I sell, sell do a lot of uh, book tours here in the South, you know, I 
kind of I don't write about good guys or bad guys. Um, my characters are on both sides. It's about friends who get separated in the beginning of the war and end up on opposite sides and have to kind of navigate this friendship with the, you know, this geopolitical conflict between them. Um, and I, I write about people uh, because I kind of in real life don't believe in in really like good people or bad people. I just feel like we're all kind of like in a continuum. And, uh, you know, I have friends that are very different from me. I'll tell you this. My sister is uh, the um, co-chair of the uh, Michigan GOP. And she's <laughs> um, she's like uh, talks to Donald Trump on a regular basis. You know, I love my sister to death. We are, could not be more different from each other, uh, religion or politics. I, I kind of write to that about the mm -hmm. human, about honor amongst enemies. And because, you know, it's a romantic period and I'm kind of romantic. So <laughs> yeah, if, you like, if you like what you're hearing from me and um, I'm on Amazon, check me out, Cody C. Engdahl. And, uh, you know, and also uh, any of your listeners, um, man, I'm an open person. If you want to uh, send me a friend request on Facebook, uh, we can be friends, man. I don't care who you pray for. I don't care who you pray to or who you go to mm -hmm. bed with. I can be friends with everybody, man. It's my superpower. Well, yeah, and 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 I'd also I'd also like to emphasize to the to the audience if 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 y'all are still listening because I know I'm uh, you know even <laughs> even if you don't if even if you don't agree with everything you know Mr. Angdahl here has said and I know you you, you insist that I call you I call everyone Mr. So and so um, it's a, it's a Southern thing but um but you know even if you don't agree with everything that he says in terms of in terms of when we start getting on getting onto these more political things just for the value of his writing alone I would more than recommend reading his books like just for the pure artistic value because you know late literary critic Harold Bloom one of my favorite. Uh, probably my favorite literary critic ever um, said, uh, you know, he said that uh, something that's aesthetically good, doesn't matter where it comes from. It's just aesthetically good. And that's, mm -hmm. that's why I would recommend Mr. Mr. Engdahl's books. Well, thank you very much. And I don't require anybody to uh, agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Well, All right. Well, well, thank you very much. This has been episode seven of the New World Signals podcast. Um, thank you all for listening, and may you find foreign shores less appealing than your own.